Hello, and welcome back to the Court Report podcast, hosted by Blake and Grace. This episode is the first installment of our Supreme Court series, and this regards the uh, case Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, 1954. Um, essentially, what we aim to do here at Court Report is to break down some of the more prominent Supreme Court cases from throughout uh, American history and break it down from the social context of the time that brought the case before the court, uh, the ruling and the elements that went into the decision handed down by the justices at the time, and how the uh, subsequent ruling had implications for uh, the changing of American society at large, and how people's lives today are affected by the rulings of the past, uh, present, and uh, eventually future. Um, what we aim to do is provide uh, essentially a low-level uh, case review of these uh, Supreme Court cases, um, breaking down uh, the social and historical context, um, as well as the uh, constitutional elements of these cases, um, how they were in violation or uh, how they came to be at, at odds with uh, social progress in the United States. Um, the reason why we went with Brown v. Board of Education to, to start things off today is because of its prominence towards the uh, civil rights movement of the 20th century and its uh, significance towards uh, overturning Plessy v. Ferguson, which was a landmark case uh, in 1896, which set the precedent of separate but equal, which uh, Brown v. Board of Education would eventually come to overturn. So I guess that's how we'll uh, start off this episode uh, with the uh, social context of the time uh, leading into uh, the uh, middle of the 20th century. So before we get into the uh, appellate and the appellee, let's talk about the uh, Jim Crow America, um, largely as a result of Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. So Grace, if you uh, recall, Plessy v. Ferguson set the precedent of separate but equal. And in the relevance of Brown v. Board of Education, uh, this essentially meant that um, between black and white students, there was segregated facilities, which means segregated schools. And this was lawful uh, provided by the constitution, given that both of these uh, facilities were of the same cal uh, caliber quality, uh, meaning they had the same, uh, perhaps uh, same budget, same uh, uh, quality uh, faculty uh, facilities, meaning uh, amenities, uh, electricity, uh, rooms, um, uh, educational material and equipment, um, what have you. So we get to the middle of the 20th century uh, where there have been a handful of cases fought against um, the, the uh, pre-existing doctrine of separate but equal provided by um, plus D.B. Ferguson. But what happens is uh, we can get right into it with the um, the plaintiff, um, Linda Brown. Um, well, actually, that's the daughter, I guess, really. Um, what the actual Brown who applied would be, um, sorry, if you can remind me, it's uh, the, not, not Linda Brown. Her father was the one who actually filed um, against Topi the Topeka board of education. Am I right in saying that, Grace? Yes. Yes. Oliver, uh, Brown. Oliver Brown. Oliver Brown. That's right. Oliver Brown, uh, Miss, uh, Mrs. Richard Lawton, and Mrs. Sadie Emanuel, um, which were the appellants of those uh, of those cases which were 
combined to form Brown. Um, and then the uh, appellee was Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Shawnee, Kansas, Shawnee County, Kansas. Um, so what was the primary concern uh, that Brown v. Board of Education brought before the Supreme Court? Essentially, it was, does segregation based specifically on race violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment regarding the segregation of um, public schools? Um, separate but equal is, uh, was ruled to be inherently unequal at the end of it, which we'll, we'll break down the case, but just as a teaser, as race-based segregation of public education promoted a sense of uh, inferiority uh, between African-American and white students, um, merely because even though uh, the facilities were of the same quality, merely denying admittance into a white school for an African-American instilled a sense of inferiority, which had adverse effects for their education, which uh, was argued to violate the Equal Protection Clause. Um, that Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment states, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So I guess what we can get into now is more of how the case was actually brought to the court. So Grace, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the particular Brown case? Uh, I know that we uh, it's largely known as Brown v. Board of Education, but with Oliver and Linda Brown specifically, not the other cases that were uh, coagulated together into it. Yeah, so Linda Brown was an elementary school student um, living in Topeka, Kansas, and instead of attending the all-white school that was very close to her house, um, she was forced to, well, forced, being that it was six blocks away just to get to the bus stop, to attend a school um, for African-American students. And so simply because of like the extra burden placed on the family and her having to walk all that way for virtually no reason, um, other than like the standing in Plessy, her father, fa her father sued. Um, but the problem was that because of Plessy, because the schools themselves were arguably of the same quality, of the same caliber, the same faculty, the same budgets, like you said, um, it really wasn't until they found the 14th Amendment argument that um, it could really be argued or disputed in that way. Um, so that was like the main kind of issue which led them to sue. Um, and then that brings us to like the case in court, which I don't know if we want to go right into, if there's anything you want to add first. No, I think, I think we can progress right into it. This was, uh, th this takes us to about, uh, 1951, about three years before the ruling, right? Yes. Where uh, the actual, the actual, uh, class action against the Topeka Board of Education was filed by, uh, yes. uh Linda Brown's father, Oliver Brown. Yep. So kind of going like right from there, in 1952, um, towards the end, it was consolidated with like three other major segregation cases in the NAACP and one other one that was filed separately. You want to mention um, just, what those ones are? Yep. So Briggs v. I Elliott like was people, 19... I, I only ask that because I feel most people don't know. They, they always assume it's just one particular case, but that actually wasn't uh, what actually happened, right? Yep. And part of the reason that Brown was eventually heard was because there was 
like a number of cases, it's like kind of overlooked that if it just kind of went by itself, it's less likely that it would have been, you know, cared about. But since it was the culmination of all these other ones, it really helped it get pushed further along at a time where it wasn't like a seen by the country as like a big issue, mm -hmm. um, which of course it was. And so in 1951, there was Briggs v. Elliott from South Carolina. Um, Davis v. the County School Board of Prince Edward County was um, in Virginia just about a year later. Um, Gebhardt v. Ethel in Delaware, 1952. And then the one that was not filed by the NAACP was Bowling v. Sharp, which is one that I think people know a little bit more about. And that was in Washington, D.C. So again, like saying, like most of these schools that were involved in all these cases were said to be equal in terms of like, you know, the classes they offered, like the quality of the professors, which also like you have to acknowledge, like that could not have been the case. It can be like, you know, people go there, like they inspect the school. So like, yeah, they're good. But that's kind of the extent to which that was being regulated. So that's also another issue. But the main thing was that because like on paper, they were equal, any sort of incident like what was happening in Brown had to like be proven to be different somehow and to be like affecting the students. Right. I think um, that's one of the great enigmas as well as how were these uh, schools under the ruling of Plessy v. Ferguson? How were they actually uh, kind of evaluated for their um, equalness, so to speak? Um, you know, I feel like there's a kind of a <laughs> uh, a lot to be desired and how that was uh, kind of handled. But anyway, so after that case was filed, you know, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, just because um, Linda Brown's school was further technically under uh, Plessy v. Ferguson, th there was no real violation, but I guess we'll, we'll kind of get into how this violation of the 14th Amendment was actually found. So does this kind of go into where um, Thurgood Marshall from the NAACP was kind of brought into the case to attack it on the basis of um, inferiority sh uh, by mere segregation on, on the basis of race alone? Not, yeah, so not, just not going back... Just going back to what you said too about like how schools are um evaluated that's mm -hmm. also like another thing we can talk about later too because there's a whole issue with like even though brown was unanimous decision and like on paper it was like you know like a life-changing decision for the court and for america it's very interesting to like look at how decisions like landmark decisions by the court are actually enforced and this is a very very I would say pertinent one because it's like you know once this is decided it's like okay like this is like the new norm but it's like will schools really follow that and that was like a whole ordeal just after the case anyway um but yes so Thurgood Marshall was the first African-American to serve on the Supreme Court um beginning in 1967 and so the whole separate but equal thing was like the obviously the unique part of Plessy that was the problem with this case and what would have to be like proven is that the decisions and like the the standing law would have to affect the students in some way for it to be in a different way unequal if that makes sense like it would have to sort of align with separate but equal but it would have to be like prove that that's kind of a what's the word like kind of just a silly like the whole the phrase separate but equal itself is inherently unequal and that's what his ruling and like his findings really um, allowed the court to see, which is one of the other reasons it was unanimous. Um, and then the first, so it was argued first on the 9th of December in 1952, 
Um, but it was re-argued in 1953, just like at the end of the year. Um, and it was like the main thing they had to do with like, once they decided the 14th Amendment was the most relevant issue to sort of break this like, it's almost like, it's almost like you knew that like the people who had made this decision knew that separate but equal was just like, it's an, an excuse really. So hmm. like when they found that the 14th Amendment could have some way to kind of like show that at least to the Supreme Court justices, um, it was very divided because it was a lot of like, obviously different perspectives on the court. Um, but the main question was like, is it inconsistent with standing precedent on racial segregation and how? So that was like the main, and that's why it's one of the most challenging ones because it's at a time where like, obviously the norm and like what's guiding these directions is the most widely accepted thing. So I guess like, yes, that was a very, like central piece to the whole thing. Hmm. So getting into it now, so now now the case is uh it's been you know put before um it, uh, sorry the uh class action was brought by um Oliver Brown before the uh board of of uh, education of Topeka. And now Thurgood Marshall steps in to attack it using new um social findings saying that uh you know while Plessy v. Ferguson established step property equal, the negative uh, adverse effects of uh, separation on the basis of race alone has a negative impact on the uh, development and education of African-American children because they feel like they're condemned to a lesser quality education. Um, but now let's get into how the actual case was uh, deliberated over in at the Supreme Court once it was brought up. So I guess one of the major uh, elements here would be uh, Justice Vinson, right? Which I think you know a little bit about this. Did you yeah. want to do you want to mention this? Yeah. So he wasn't really convinced that it should be. He was. I don't know his like perspective on the whole thing. He wasn't like. He was obviously like very set in his ways and he was not convinced that it was a constitutional question itself so again you see like sort of like the avoidance like deterrence to the question where it's like is this even and some justices thought it should be left to congress itself so that brings in a whole like they're actually asking like is it within our like responsibilities or like our like realm going back to like the simplest thing of checks and balances like in the u.s government they're like is this even our problem um but like kind of a big turning point was in september of that year 1953 he died of a heart attack so that was when eisenhower had to um give the next like seat to someone so he gave it to earl warren and he had like guaranteed it to him already um so in december of that year he the chief justice the new one um he met with the rest of the court and he left his like powerful opening statement. So that was like a big, I guess you could consider that like the turning point of the whole case. Um, because for the beginning with like Justice Vincent and all that, it was really like, oh, this is a problem. But then they would just keep going back to like, is it even a constitutional question? Like, should it be left to Congress? All this stuff. Um, and then basically Warren was the one who continued with really pushing for like, instead of like the justices were trying to say, okay, is separate but equal constitutional, is separate but equal constitutional, but that wasn't really, like, the question. The question was, 
does segregation itself, aside from that precedent, violate the amendment? And that was why it was able to go somewhere. It's because they they got away from that. And so the case doesn't ask, like, is this precedent in violation of the Constitution? It's does it violate this clause alone, like without that precedent from the case before? Um, so I think going back to that, it's important to point out like the other two um, cases that related to segregation at like the college or university level. Um, these were both decided before, like about four years before. Um, so there was Sweat v. Painter, um, in which the 14th Amendment like kind of barred the University of Texas from rejecting applicants based on race. And then in the same year, um, McLaurin v. Oklahoma, they claimed that segregation within institutions or facilities of universities was inconsistent with the Equal Protection Clause. So those were two cases where you can see um, like the 14th Amendment itself kind of going hand in hand with decisions about segregation at the college level. So that's kind of where these two intersect. Um, and so that was, again, like the tangible factors, the one that they were saying are good, they kind of became null because it's like the justices are realizing, okay, it's not really about this anymore. Right. So I think that was the main kind of takeaway from that. And that was how it really, people ask a lot. They're like, how would a case that was just like turned down so many times at like circuit levels become like a unanimous decision? And it was really that replacement of the justices kind of in the middle that like pushed it. And I think that's like, it's well known to some, others don't really look into it. So it's important to realize like timing really matters with this case. And that's also why it took so long because it was not officially decided until May of 1954. Mm. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder uh, what would have happened had uh, the original justices who heard the case initially, had they stayed on the bench throughout the, uh, the, the ruling in, in full. Uh, had uh, Justice Vincent not died. Um, but so essentially, at the end of the day, you're right, though, it's uh, just purely based on the, uh, the violation of the Equal Protection Clause, purely because the separation, even though they're the same caliber quality, merely had a disparate impact on one set being African American students, uh, while um, leaving uh, white students unaffected and, and creating um, a sense of inferiority. Um, but now let's get into the actual uh, the actual uh, result of the decision of the case, how uh, American society accepted the ruling of Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. Um, I, th I think most people are familiar with the Little Rock Nine. Um, there was a lot of pushback, uh, especially uh, in the Jim Crow South, to the ruling of Brown v. Board of Education, which um, essentially banned uh, segregation in, in uh, schools throughout the country, uh, at least federal and public. Uh, that being said, um, the social struggle to accept desegregation in schools um, was most prevalent uh, perhaps in Little Rock, Arkansas uh, at Central High School, where nine black students enrolled at an all-white high school uh, in September of 1957, so this is now multiple years after the uh, decision was handed down for Brown v. Board of Education, um, and merely four days into September, on September 4th of 1957, the governor of Arkansas, uh, Orval Favis, uh, ordered the National Guard of Arkansas to um, uh, disallow 
these nine African-American students to enter the school, which was now in violation of uh, U.S. law as Brown v. Board of Education had um, proven in the Constitution, which is the Supreme, Court, Supreme Law of the land. Um, so this required uh, then-President Dwight D. Eisenhower to actually authorize the 101st Airborne Division from Fort Campbell, Kentucky to be mobilized and sent down from Kentucky to Little Rock, Arkansas to um, prevent public unrest and violence towards the uh, nine dissenting African-Americans who were um, trying to essentially um, forward progress towards fully socially accepting the ruling of Brown v. Board of Education. Um, some places needed a little bit more encouragement than others, I guess you could say. Um, but I think, you know, uh, there are still feelings of inequality between educational systems today, especially in the U.S., between universities, high schools of different caliber qualities, not on the basis of race, but on other other uh, key metrics, whether it's private v. public, uh, inner city uh, versus the suburbs. So have these uh, um, inequalities uh, completely been eradicated uh, from the ruling of Brown v. Board of Education till now? Uh, I would argue, no, they have not. But I think uh, for now, that's essentially going to um, cover the, the general basics of Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, what was happening at the time that caused this case to be brought into existence and to be brought for the Supreme Court? Um, how the social and political factors of the time influence the decision, as well as how the personal elements of the uh, judges on the court at the time affected the ruling, um, and how uh, American society came to accept uh, and uh, acknowledge uh, the, this new addition to the Constitution. Um, but before we close it out, Grace, do you have anything else you wanted to add to uh, our discussion on Brown v. Board of Education? Um First of all, I think that was a very important part. Um, just like to close it out, saying how, like kind of even going back to like Linda Brown and her family story of how it makes you think like, how were those schools? I'm, I'm sure there was surveys. I'm sure there was like, you know, like obviously health inspectors, like that kind of thing going into the schools, making sure they're like literally, I don't know, maybe even like square footage, like the gym size, all of that stuff. Um, but still, like, you don't really think about that either. So this, I think, on one hand, it's really just like the technicalities of Supreme Court decisions and how the questions themselves, um, I mean, this one, arguably not so much, but the questions themselves are, especially today, like in the Supreme Court, like pending cases today, they're supposed to be like the most difficult questions. That's obviously why they go to the Supreme Court. But I think right. even just thinking like that, and then going back to like, technical part of it, like, the little things that go into it, I just think that's something everyone should consider, like in these rulings. And I think that makes it a little more um, like you get a little more appreciation for it and you want to go learn more about other cases. And that kind of goes back to like our purpose with these podcasts. Um, and then also, I think like something really just noteworthy and kind of inspiring a little is um, shortly, very shortly after the Brown decision was made in 1954, um, Justice Jackson passed away, and the president at the time chose his replacement, um, John Harlan. And John Harlan was the grandson of the only justice who actually dissented in the 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson case. 
so I think that's just yeah so that's just like a very I don't know it's like a a sense of irony (laughs) yeah and I guess like you know the I feel like in my opinion like that just kind of that closes the case like obviously there's still issues like there's still it wasn't like oh yeah like the Supreme Court said this is what's happening so this happens instantly like without dispute but I think for me that's kind of like okay the case was decided um so I thought that was just like a cool kind of thing to add no absolutely I think uh overall um the the impact of uh Brown v Board of Education was of its uh significance as one of the first major um uh, victories for the civil rights movement, but also it's showcasing of how the progressivity uh, and like willingness of the court in the, the mid 19, uh, mid 20th century um, opened up the way for further victories for the civil rights movement about a decade later with the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964 and then eventually the uh, Voters' Rights Act of 1965. But as you mentioned, those are uh, other SCOTUS cases we can get into later. Um, but for this episode, I think that's where we're going to wrap it up for now. Uh, Grace, thank you again. Another amazing episode and incredible research on your end. Um, everyone, I'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of the Court Report podcast. Uh, and we hope to see you here in the next episode. Thank you.